2: This whole position is being overrun by zombies. We'll have to flee. OMG, zombies everywhere. Greg wants to leave. What a loser. Are you Facebooking this? No, that was Snapchat. For Facebook, I want some video. So can you stand next to the window with the zombie's face all mushed up next to it? Kion, this is serious! Mm-hmm. And you know what it also is? The greatest social media event of my life. I never have anything to say, but now I'm trending. Because zombies. Oh no, oh no, 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 One of them just bit Lydia. Oh, that sweet, beautiful girl, gone forever. I am totally Instagramming that right now. Look, this filter makes her head look like a piece of toast. I, I can't believe you. Greg, what was that? The power grid just went down, and now the zombies are eating the cell towers. But how could that even happen? What do you mean? Well, there's, I mean, there's got to be like a, like a backup plan, right? I mean, the, the internets and phones can't just go away. So. This is an apocalypse. By definition, there is no backup plan. I thought existence was only real if we could, you know, communicate about it. This is horrible. How do I even know if I'm real if I'm not LMFAO? This changes everything citizens of the world. In less than an hour, we will join others from around the world in launching the largest battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have a new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interests. We are fighting for our right to live on the internet, to exist, to text, to tweet, and should we win the day? This will be known as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We are going to live on. We're going to have Tumblr and Pinterest.
1: And Tinder.
2: Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. Is my whole account deleted? Hmm, look, just let's get YouTube back up and I'll do my whole speech again. And then we'll slowly reclaim the world and all that stuff. Meanwhile, hey zombies, listen to this radio show. And now he has an iPad that runs on his own urine, Colin McEnroe.
3: I call it streaming audio. Uh, All right, so we are going to talk today not entirely about disasters, but we're going to start anyway with a pretty detailed conversation about what happens when one of those disasters, whether it's Mother Nature, uh, whether it's a solar flare, whether it's terrorists, what happens when one of those uh, disasters impedes your ability to communicate, to get communications from the government or anybody else who might be trying to help you? What happens when the phones go out and the power goes down and the internet is gone? Uh, what's left uh, in terms of ways for you to find out what's going on? Assuming anything is going on. Uh, but assume assumes something is. So joining us today uh, from uh, NPR in Washington, D.C., uh, Manny Centeno, uh, he's a program manager for the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System of FEMA in studio. Arnold Chase, uh, former owner and manager of WTIC Radio and involved in preparedness and broadcasting for his entire life. He's doing something right now, I'm sure, just sitting there, uh, but he can't tell you what it is. Uh, and then by phone, we're also talking to uh, somebody that I worked with for, I think, 16 years, something like that, uh, Jeff Hugobone, uh, who is a Connecticut broadcast engineer for 25 years and currently uh, associate chair of the Connecticut Emergency Alert Committee. So as I say, we're going to talk... Um, First about this whole question of communication, and then there'll be things to say about what what can be communicated to you, what you need uh, to uh, act upon uh, the communications that you get, uh, all of that stuff. But um, we're three years out from uh, Hurricane Sandy or Tropical Storm Sandy or whatever we decided Sandy was, uh, so this stuff uh, is uh, very real in a lot of ways. Um, Uh, There are other anniversaries that we could also mention. So uh, we'll probably do that as we go along. Um, Manny, I'm going to start with you because this isn't an abstraction for you. Um, In your life uh, working down in the Virgin Islands, you lived through two storms which effectively either knocked out or had the capacity to knock out communication. So maybe you can compare uh, 1989 uh, and 1995 uh, and what you learned in the intervening six years.
4: You know, Colin, good afternoon, and thanks for uh, having me uh, on your show today. Um, well, you've got to think about complete and total isolation. And, and that's how you feel when you are in the middle of a disaster and there isn't any immediate help. Um, and you have to fend for yourself. Uh, and that's the mindset of the folks that are in the middle of that emergency. How do I protect myself and my family? How do I feed them? How do I make sure they have drinking water and so on and so forth? It's a total feeling of isolation. It's an end of the world landscape. There are no radio stations on the air. Back then, we didn't have a whole lot of cell phones either, but there's nothing. So Your 19, house is destroyed.
3: Yeah, 1989, Hurricane Hugo hit. You were in St. Croix, and, and there was a lot that people needed to know. And, and I take it it was almost impossible to tell them what they needed to know. Can you describe v- that more? Virtually, yeah. yes.
4: I, I was managing – I was running a radio station um, in the town of Frederickstead in St. Croix. And, um, you know, back then, we, I, I grew up with a couple of tropical storms, and they didn't really do a whole lot of damage, um, not to that level. And so you, you have a certain amount of amnesia. You never think it's going to happen, so you don't prepare. Um, we were the only station on the air with a tower standing. The only problem that we we had we know we knew we had at the time was that we had no power, and I didn't have a generator. So that was a big big learning. Uh, uh, that was a big lesson for me. Um, and we eventually got a generator. But folks were very um, they were very upset. They didn't expect. The storm to to have that uh, type of force, although we knew it was a category three or four that was going to come through. We didn't know it was going to slow down uh, over the island for 12 hours and just literally just sat there with 150 mile-hour winds uh, and higher gusts. Um, we, we just didn't know. No one had experienced that except for maybe our grandparents, and it had been a long time ago. So it, 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 it surprised a lot of people and um and it was um it was totally devastating, and we weren't prepared for it
3: and, and um and among, it caused
4: a lot of unrest yeah. and, and other issues
3: among the things that people might have wanted to know prisoners got out of prison
4: right prisoners uh got out, the hospital was destroyed uh there was very little management from the government it, it took everyone by surprise, and there was very little preparation um there It was just complete mayhem um and it, i I've got to be positive about it though. A lot of folks, the majority of the, of, of the families and individuals in that community were looking out for each other. Yes, there was some looting um, and, and all that. But what do you do when you're in an island and you're completely isolated and no one's talking to you?
3: So, um, well, Arnold Chase uh, in 2010, we don't live in an island here in Connecticut, but we found out during the storm that was sometimes called Arborgeddon, I think that was 2010, uh, when the snow came early uh, around Halloween uh, and took down power lines, took down all kinds, and the power stayed out for a really long time, we did start to learn what it's like to feel almost that isolated. isolated. There were pockets of the state that weren't getting their power back, and, and communication wasn't great. But for the most part, I mean, people had cell phones. Cell phones mostly worked. Things like that happened. What happens when the cell towers here? What happens here in Connecticut? When the cell towers do go out, uh, the power does go down, uh, internet's not working anymore. Um, what do people do then? How do people find out what they need to know? What would happen in Connecticut at that level?
0: Well, I think you, first of all, need to realize that um, when something atypical happens, people immediately want to know what the heck happened, and the innate need to know is really hardwired into our DNA. So if we're not able to get the answers to what happened, a curious thing happens to us. We let our imaginations run wild and immediately assume the worst-case scenario. Now, four years ago, an accident happened at a nuclear reactor in Fukushima, Japan, resulting in massive amounts of radiation being released. Sixteen hundred people died because of that accident. Yet, what's most unbelievable about that is that not one of those people died as a direct result of the radiation, but incredibly, they died due to the stress of evacuation. And information, knowing what's going on, is is really so critical. And you know, I, I, Manny is the the expert on the program that the uh, the government um, set up to bring information to at least 90% of the population very, very quickly. And by knowing what's going on, that's so key to knowing what to do.
3: Oh, yeah. And I want to come back to Fukushima because the way I look at it, It's hard to unthread the communication um, factor from what there is to be communicated. So 1,600 people who died at Fukushima, I mean, a lot of those people were in temporary shelters for three years. Their stress levels went up. Alcoholism went up. Mental illness went up. Uh, You could very easily argue that the government of Japan and Tokyo was spending more money on the 2020 Olympic preparation than it was in dealing with an actual refugee crisis in in its own midst. So even after the initial communication, there's real questions about how society's response Bond in these situations, and that's going to kill people. Even if you have great communication,
0: but the key here was that the Japanese government didn't communicate in a timely fashion, and they didn't communicate in a, um, a properly informed fashion. And as a result, the decision on whether to shelter in place, stay in place, or to you know, run as fast as you can was not. Um, that decision couldn't be properly made by the people, and as a result. All the things you've described and all the downstream effects could have been avoided. And that's the importance of. Timely, inaccurate information. Some
3: of them could have been avoided. Um, I mean, some people really did need to get out of there uh, and go someplace else. Anyway, we'll come back to that. I think that's a sort of separate part of this. So, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to jump in here. So, um, once again, go back to that, that scenario. The cell phones don't work. The Internet doesn't work. The power grid is down. All of this is happening here in Connecticut. What's left? How do I find things out at that point? And so, Jeff, uh, Jeff Hugobon, are you with us? Uh, yeah, Jeff. Oh. Oh, he, might, he might be having a, uh, an emergency of his own right now, a communication emergency. Jeff, are you there? Yeah.
1: Uh, let me try a different
3: phone. Oh, there you are. Jeff, I, we can hear you now.
1: Yeah, no, um, I guess I would have to say that, you know, what's important for the public to um, understand at that point is um, radio broadcast has – Um, a very prominent role in um, providing that emergency information.
3: So, um, okay, so we can talk. There's sort of two different kinds of radio, right? There's sort of, uh, you know, I I try to stay on the air and I talk to people. Ray Dunaway tries to stay on the air at WTIC and talk to people. But there's another system that sits underneath that one, right? If that one isn't working as well, there's what we call, you know, that emergency alert service. So, Jeff, tell us how that works.
1: Yeah, the EAS system was uh, uh, primarily designed to give the uh, president the ability to communicate directly with the public. Um, but in implementation of that, you also get the ability for state and local uh, agencies and um, emergency disseminators to be able to access the public as well. So it's sort of a, a catch-all. and. Um, well, I'm, I'm, here, I'm me... sorry, uh, Colin. I'm having a little trouble with my wireless. Uh, I may have to switch phones.
3: <laughs> this is such a perfect thing to be happening for this show. <laughs> Nothing could be better. So let me go over so, the. To... Colin, let me let me yeah, address that sure. a little bit if Thanks, you don't mind. Man. This
4: yeah. is Manny. Um, yes, we we do have a, a program uh, called the Emergency Alert System. We also have a similar program called the Wireless Emergency Alert System that that that, that works on cell phones for broadcast of uh, uh, the broadcast space. Uh, the emergency alert system has been uh, active since about 1995-96. We do have a national program called the Primary Entry Point Program that uh, has 76 uh, major radio stations around the country that are, that are survivable, that have a sufficient power backup, and, and the things that are necessary for them to be operated for at least uh, several weeks uh, on end, should the need uh, arise where a a local or state uh, authority might need to uh, transmit information to the public or uh, obviously the president or someone at the federal level if deemed necessary. So that that program is in place, and we just built uh, those facilities at WTIC over in Hartford.
3: So and maybe you can sort of give us a sense. We're going to go to a break in just a second. But Manny, maybe you can give us a sense, too, uh, uh, of how the sort of state versus federal um, uh, organization and and planning devolves. In other words, my sense is if a tornado rips through Connecticut and knocks out power and does all kinds of other damage, that it's kind of something that the state is basically going to be involved in, that I think most people's vision of FEMA, Maybe an inaccurate one is they'll come in later, they'll write some checks, they'll set up some trailers, they'll try to help some people, uh, They, you know, maybe also help uh, you know, try to move some wreckage around, see if anybody's under there and stuff like that. But in terms of what's happening, getting the information out in those, say, first you know, 12 to 24 critical hours where Arnold doesn't want us to make bad decisions, how involved is FEMA and how mo- much of that is more strictly a state problem?
4: Well, we, we you know within the area that I work in, which is a public warning, um, we facilitate this information through something we call the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System, or IPAWS. So those every time your phone vibrates with an alert uh, or an Amber Alert or child abduction emergency, that's coming through IPAWS through your cell phone. It isn't originated by us, so we don't we don't, we don't create these messages for the most part. They may be created by National Weather uh, Service in terms of a tornado or a weather-type emergency, and others at the state and local levels. Um, so we facilitate, for example, the emergency alert system as well. Now, it, it was created for a national-level alert. However, we do invite the local and state authorities to use the, all of these systems to uh, to to warn the public, to inform the public of impending danger.
3: Yeah, there's something that I signed up for at the state level that I get on my phone right now. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, maybe we'll figure that out during the break. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more of this after this.
2: The
3: broadcasters of your area In voluntary cooperation with the FCC oh, Have developed a system to keep you informed All right, we're back. We're talking about disasters and especially about how we communicate in a disaster. With us is uh, Manny Centeno. Uh, he is program manager uh, for the Integrated Public Award and Warning System of FEMA. He's uh, with us from the uh, NPR studios in Washington, D.C. In the studio with us, Arnold Chase, our preparedness go-to guy involved in preparedness and broadcasting for his entire life. Uh, and also with us, Jeff Hugabon, uh, Connecticut broadcast engineer for 25 years and associate chair of the Connecticut Emergency Alert Committee. So, um, Arnold, Well, Jeff and many have given us kind of a good sense of... uh, how many ways there are to get messages out. So we know radio stations are pretty good at staying on the air these days. They've got backup generators. They've got things that they need. Lying underneath them is this other uh, um, alert system that's essentially run by the government and can go right into our phones or wherever. Um, but we have to be in a position to get this information. Uh, it can be sent out but not necessarily received. So what do people need? What is the person who's listening to this show right now? And by the way, if you have a question, call in at 860 8- Six if the zombies have not taken your cell phone away, 860-275-7266. Never let them borrow your cell phone, no matter what they say to you. Uh, and uh, Or you can tweet us at WNPR, Colin, assuming you still have internet. Don't, I, don't, I shouldn't even say that. I'm panicking people unnecessarily. Nothing bad at the moment. Right now, nothing, <laughs> nothing bad is happening. I can't vouch for an hour from now, but right now, nothing bad is happening. So, Arnold, what do people need? Give them their kind of basic shopping list, their ingredients. What do they need to get this information?
0: Depending on the severity of, of a, an emergency, the AM radio is your best and most reliable way to receive information. You know, when the power is on, that's great. You have your internet, you have your cell phones, you have all, all different kinds of diverse ways of getting that information. But when everything goes away, and we saw that uh, during the, the, the long-duration power outages a few years ago. Ultimately, you're left with AM radio. Interestingly enough, most people today don't think about AM radio at all. And as a result, probably only 80% of the households out there have battery-operated AM radios. And that's what's critical. Everyone should have a battery-operated radio and know how to use it.
3: When you say know how to use it, I mean, I think people think, well, yeah, I turn it on, right? And uh, what else do they need to know about how to use it?
0: Well, they first need to know what to tune to. Mm-hmm. They first need to know if it's um, if it's an emergency situation and the uh, emergency stations are broadcasting at lower power. How to tune in a weak signal? Mm-hmm. And you know, Hollywood has done a great injustice over the years because you always see people with AM radios pressed to their ears with this uh, silver whip antenna extended mm-hmm. and. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In terms of, if you ask someone, how do you tune in a distant AM station, mm-hmm. and you give them three choices, take the radio as is with the antenna retracted, pull the antenna out vertically, or pull the antenna out and lay it down horizontally, which would you pick?
3: I'd, I'd put the antenna go up.
0: Okay. the The reality is that that antenna is only hooked up to the FM section. So it, it all these um, these movies where you see people moving that antenna around listening to AM it, it's it's beloved I could break
3: the antenna off and use it to hit people who are trying to yes, take, you take my
0: food. Yes you could yeah. or protect yourself against the zombies absolutely.
3: So and why AM why is why is AM better than FM?
0: Because it's the simplest, most reliable uh method of communication out there, voice communication out there. And at night it can travel literally thousands of miles.
3: Um, and, and I mean, the other thing uh, that uh, I, I hear but don't understand, because to me, my phone is just this little magical thing that I own, uh, is that texting or SMSing will work at a time when voice uh, phone calls will not. Is that A, true, and B, if so, why?
0: It is true, because phone systems are only designed with so many so much capacity. And in terms of the wired telephone service, if more than 10 percent of the people try to use their phones at a given time, it doesn't work. And in terms of cell phones, it's a similar situation. So uh, the texting, however, goes out on non-voice channels. And without getting too geeky or technical, uh, it's far more resilient. Having said that, if a cell tower goes down, everything goes down.
3: All right, we've got a question here from uh, Dwayne in uh, Meriden. Let me get him up here. Hi, Dwayne, you're on the air. What's your question? How are you? Um, My question is, with
1: all the times I'm sitting out watching a good show or listening to something on the radio, we constantly get these interruptions where stations are testing their emergency broadcast signal or whatever. And when they were flying planes into buildings during 9-11, they didn't use that. So if that's not a time to use that, when exactly does that get used?
3: All right. Uh, well, the premise of your question may it may, may not be true, Jeff. I'm going to let you start with that uh, anyway. That uh, you've been you've overseen that system that runs the kinds of tests that Dwayne is talking about, and which he occasionally finds are quite annoying. What can you tell about tell us about well, you and I were working together uh, at the time of 9/11. W- what did it do at that time?
1: Yeah, our, uh, Colin, and this kind of dovetails into Arnold's point as well, in that I would answer that by saying that the system that EAS uses uh, to ensure that it is reliable are those weekly tests and those monthly tests that come out. Each technology has its own alerting method. Um, cell phones have SMS um, and texting, and something called WEA wireless alerting. There's a re- reverse 911. Um, Internet has its own protocols, and so. How that relates to the 9-11 event is that the, um, the short-fuse nature of uh, what happened on 9-11 was already being broadcast. Um, it, what What are the messages that those other alerting channels are going to give you? Those alerting messages are going to be tune into your local radio and television.
3: Right, so that and that's what people were doing. People weren't I mean maybe the answer to Duane's question is people weren't starved for information at that moment. Most of the systems uh, were working. Maybe the closer you got to to ground zero that was less and less true. But uh, I see Ar- Arnold has a a comment too. Well,
1: yeah. I'll, I'll so, and, and Manny, uh, you know, uh, he may have some insight. Uh, to yeah, that.
3: I want to hear well, from what, both what you, yeah, both Arnold and Manny. But I got to get that done by thirty-three forty. <laughs> you guys like time cues, so I'm just
0: telling you. Okay. With nine eleven, the the reason uh, the alert system wasn't activated, the primary reason was that it was such a localized event. Even though everyone was interested in it, it only affected a small area. So the infrastructure stayed completely in place. All the different media outlets stayed in place. So there was no need to activate it.
3: Okay, so that's that. And so, uh, Manny, do you want to talk about this? I mean, this is a little bit different from FEMA's point of view, from anybody's point of view. This is a little bit different from a hurricane, right? When 9-11 happens, nobody knows that it's going to happen.
4: The system is always ready to be activated, and and, and is always awaiting that that activation uh, uh, approval by the president or or whoever the president designates. It wasn't necessary, as both of these gentlemen gentlemen have uh, indicated. Uh, it was live on television, and just about everybody was broadcast in the event. As Arnold said, it was a relatively localized event, um, and and we just we we were on standby. The broadcast community was on standby, should it be needed. But, you know, there's there, almost as important as, as if you ask yourself, when is it time to actually issue a public warning over the airwaves? That question is as important as when is it time to not send one, right? That's almost as important as sending one. So it was decided that it wasn't necessary and it would create additional concern uh, f- uh, by the public should it be, uh, have been sent.
3: Right. Um, I will say that uh, uh, several of us here on the show live in West Hartford, Connecticut, where our, our mayor, uh, Scott Slifka, an elf lord, is able to send us these very good. I always feel very – do you get those? You, you probably don't even bother. I, feel, I always feel very well-informed with those reverse 911 calls. I know, he's just smiling cryptically over there. Let me ask you a question before we run out of time in this segment, Arnold. Is there something that knocks out everything? In other words, you know, sometimes we talk about electromagnetic pulses and stuff like that. Is – is the beast? I've only got a minute here, but is so, there's something that's so hardened off it can't get wrecked?
0: Yes, there are scenarios, both natural and man created, that would knock out virtually all the media in, over huge uh, areas immediately,
3: including th- these kinds of emergency alerts that Manny and Jeff are talking about.
0: No, they still work. They would. They're the they're the uh, delivery method of last resort, and that's why they're there.
3: All right. That's reassuring. We're going to take a break. Some very nice people are going to ask you to help support public radio. We've got some questions. If you guys could just stay on the on hold for 5 minutes, I'm sure Manny and Arnold and uh, Jeff would be happy to answer your questions. Try and do
4: something about-
2: I'm shocked at how unprepared people are for a hurricane. I mean, how many of you even have both light and dark rum on hand? And grenadine and lime juice? Forget it. What's that? They're talking about the other kind of hurricane? Oh, I don't know anything about that. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Dan Schultz. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Goldblum. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff testing their battery-operated blender, visit our website, wnpr.org Colin. On tomorrow's show, The Nose. And now... Back to Colin.
3: All right, we're back. Uh, our time is limited, and I don't want to do a lengthy introductions. But uh, Manny Centeno is with us. He's uh, with FEMA. Arnold Chase is with us. He knows everything about disaster preparedness. That, that at least I I've never been able to expose a gap in his knowledge. Jeff Hugabon is with us. Uh, he is uh, part of the Emergency Alert System here in Connecticut as a broadcast engineer at WTIC. Um, so um, where did I want to go? Okay, so um, Arnold, you know, we were saying before about how. Uh, these transistor radios, uh, as they used to be called, battery-operated radios, uh, the, uh, the antenna only works for FM. Uh, AM is where you think most of the um, useful information is going to come from. So um, one thing that we, you went over with me during the break is how you actually do optimize the performance of your AM radio, which involved a certain visual aid. But describe to people what they need to do.
0: The, the, radio, the antenna for an AM radio is built into the radio. And in order to optimize the signal... What you have to do is just rotate the radio uh, into two different directions, and you'll find the direction that the um, signal is the strongest.
3: Yeah, so just take it in your hand and move it around uh, until you uh, pick up the signal that you're looking for. And
0: then, Arnold, how do they know which signal to look for? Every and um, Manny would uh, would be the one to answer this for, um, and Jeff, you know, for uh, the other states. But uh, there are 77 primary entry point stations around the country. And um, in Connecticut, it's a 1080. Of course it is.
3: Um, so I have a different question, and Manny, I'm going to start with you about this. So one of the, th- and it has to do with what happens once you get the information to people, what they do with that information, and how they act upon it. Because you can have the best delivery system in the world, and people still won't act upon it. And we know this from time and time again. We know it from Katrina. People wind up sitting up on roofs as the water rose around them. We had it here uh, with I, th- I can't remember whether it was Sandy or Irene. The governor was going nuts. At this press conferences telling people, Get out of those shoreline areas. The water's rising, and people are going, No, I think I'll stay at my house. I think, you know, I like it. I want to, I want to, you know, take care of my house. They, 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 they don't leave. So, is this, this must be something that FEMA looks at. You know, you can have the hardware, but then the software is how you talk to people and whether you can change their minds when they're thinking that way. Is that something that FEMA talks about and thinks about?
4: Well, we discuss it uh, with uh, with local and uh, and state level authorities. Uh, how what is the psychology of of a, of a public warning or or a bulletin or uh, a notification? Um, you know, you're always going to have people that don't want to move, that don't want to evacuate, that don't want to follow directions. But the way to alleviate that really is to continue to tell them to do it, and and just not don't just do it when an emergency comes. Uh, you've got to practice it. You've got to have exercises. You've got to have public service announcements. You've got to feed folks with information about this kind of stuff. Um, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And um, and so we need to continue to educate the public at the state and local level. Now, one of the things that we do at FEMA is we have a website called ready.gov uh, that has a lot of information on preparedness and how to how to make sure your family uh, uh, is ready for this type of, 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 uh, of event. Um, so go to ready.gov that has a lot of information there about the radios and the batteries and the water and all that stuff. But, you know, folks, as I told you at the beginning of the show, I was, I didn't think that this storm was going to hit any of the two storms. You know, you always have this positive feeling that, well, it's not going to affect me. It's going to be on the news over there, but you know, don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. It's, it's it will eventually affect you. You should be ready. And we have to continue to to uh, broadcast that message to the public.
3: You know, Arnold, it does seem to me that people in that situation, what they're thinking, and Judy Allen, by the way, just stay on the uh, phone right now. I want to get to you in just a second. But people in that situation, you know, they're thinking two things, if in fact they're recalcitrant, if they're not willing to leave where they are. They're thinking, the minute I leave here, I'm basically placing myself in the hands of the government, and I don't trust the government. Um, and, and maybe another, Part of that is sometimes they're right. Sometimes the government, you know, isn't as well prepared as it should be for these kinds of situations. So how how do you override that resistance? I mean, you know, you personally have prepared yourself so well that you never have to deal with the government. But most people are going to have to. So how do you persuade them that that's a better idea than being masters of their own destiny?
0: Well, human nature is human nature, and if someone. Is of the mindset that they're going to, they that they know better. Then there's nothing you're going to do. But the the reality is, the majority of people, if they're told that help is on the way, they're going to stay where they are. But if they're told there is no help going on the way, on the way, and there is nothing that is going to help them, they have to leave now. Um, I would think a majority of people will do will follow. All
3: right. Um, you know, I'm going to go back to Jeff in just a second because I, I do think that one uh, big difference here uh, sometimes is who they're hearing it from. People tend to trust people that they actually know. So you really don't know anybody in FEMA or the federal government. Maybe you feel like you know the governor a little bit. You actually probably really do feel as though you know some of your town officials. So I want to talk to Jeff in just a second about what's being done in one town, Simsbury, uh, as an example of how that can work. But before that, just because she's been on hold for a long time, uh, Judy Allen, uh, in West Hi Judy, you're on the air.
1: Hi, thanks. Um, I have a radio put out by the American Red Cross um, that is that can be battery, solar, or crank powered, and it can tune into the National Weather Advisory so I can track a storm. I'm wondering if other information
3: can come from them as well. Arnold can talk to you about these uh, Red Cross
0: radios. If the uh... Power is out for a long enough period of time. The weather radio uh, transmitters will also be out. So you're you're really dependent on that AM section of your radio. The
3: um, you call these the Swiss Army knife.
0: Yes, um, a lot of these radios have built-in sirens and flashing lights and you know, all kinds of uh, what I consider to be really silly things that. Uh, Tend to make the radio less of a radio and you know more of a a, a heavy useless uh, a piece of equipment. And what what you really want, if, if you've bought that radio for emergency alert purposes, you want to optimize the radio. It's it's uh, like cell phones that that added cameras and all kinds of things, yet the audio quality diminished over the years. Its primary purpose is a phone. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, I, let, let me just interject one thing, which is that um, Arnold Chase, who was just speaking, has been talking to me about this stuff for, I think, decades now. And his assumption is that I never listened to him, uh, which is like 40 percent true. Uh, but, in fact, for, I, I will not ma- name this member of Arnold's family, but when, um, Arnold is a big believer. that Get the basics. Do the basics. St- don't do the tricky stuff or, or what he sometimes calls the silly stuff. So a member of Arnold's family at one point proudly showed him one of those devices that people have in their cars where they can smash <laughs> Where they can smash out the driver's side window and then cut through their seat belt so as they're going glug, glug, glug down to the bottom uh, of a lake or something like that they can get themselves free and Arnold asks this member of his family do you have a blanket in your car? Uh, do you have a flashlight in your car? Because uh, you probably don't very often drive your car into a lake and go glug, glug, glug down to the bottom but you, you have many occasions where it would be great to have a blanket or a flashlight so it is really kind of true to look at those basics. See I do listen Arnold. I, right. I, I am paying attention so one thing we should say about those transistor radios is they run on batteries and?
0: Yeah, uh, they run on batteries uh, but what's important is that if you you can't um, you, you would think that by keeping a set of batteries in a radio you're ready and prepared to receive messages instantly but the reality is that all batteries eventually will leak and destroy whatever they're in and it takes two seconds to pop the, the batteries in a radio, but never store for a long period of time uh, batteries in, in your radio. But make sure you have those batteries. And today, the typical alkaline batteries have a 10-year shelf life. So there's no excuse for not buying a whole bunch of them and putting them in a drawer with the radio.
3: I have some of those batteries that you gave me four years ago, and I haven't disturbed them at all. They're just sitting there. So uh, so that's step one. So I, I did say very quickly, you know, sometimes um, local communication is really important. Uh, Jeff uh, Hugobon, uh, we discovered that in 2010 or whenever it was, the horrible Arborgeddon uh, storm happened. Communica- communities were in some ways isolated and paralyzed, and Simsbury is— to my recollection, was one of those places that, you know, I mean, help wasn't really on the way at first, and uh, the utility trucks weren't really getting there, and, and so d- towns had to sort of learn to function on, on their own and communicate better. So one thing that they can do and, and have done, I gather, in Simsbury is have their own radio system. Tell us about that, Jeff. Well,
1: it's, it's not easy to do because there was uh, only a narrow window to apply for the special license to do it, Colin. But, um, yeah, in 2011, we had uh, sort of an exceptional year with those back-to-back storms. It was first Irene, which kicked out, uh, uh, you know, out uh, 800,000, and then six week later, uh, what was it, uh, that Frankenstorm came, mm-hmm. 900,000 were out of power. So, um, yeah, Simsbury was particularly hard hit. I mean, it was like 40-some-odd roads, impassable, 10 days without power. So um, in response to that, uh, the town, through the Simsbury Fire District, uh, went and applied for a low-power FM, and the prime goal of that um, low-power FM, which, which was uh, successfully obtained by the FCC, uh, is to serve as, as a, a center, you know, a dedicated information conduit, so that uh, if ever there was an event like that, um, you know, in, a, in the future, there would be uh, the ability to have a hyper-local, Uh, super-serving of the community, and it kind of gets back into what you were saying, you know, about, uh, you know, personalities and, you know, familiar voices, and that uh, people trust but verify emergency notifications. So, you know, human nature has that we're always looking to corroborate, and broadcasters in particular, um, I think, are uniquely positioned to deliver on that as either a primary or a secondary source.
3: Um, Manny, uh, obviously, um, FEMA knows that some of these uh, disasters, some problems are pretty granular. You know, they're down at the local level. There are ways in which FEMA can address them on on a broad spectrum. But I assume that kind of hyperlocal, to use Jeff's term, communication, is something that FEMA prizes.
4: That is exactly where... Where we put our emphasis is is the operability of of these um, assets at the local level. One of the things I wanted to bring full circle in this discussion when I was talking about Hugo and St. Croix is once we were able to get power to my station, that became the beacon of information. Not only did it become the beacon of information, it was the fire dispatch, the police dispatch. It was where people would bring little notes uh, to, to let us announce that they're okay to their families and relatives in other areas of the island or in other islands in the Caribbean. Um, and so we stress the importance of everything being hyper-local. Our, our, our administrator, Craig Fugate, talks a lot about every emergency is local. And so the information that's going out is going to be local, and we would prefer for the local community and those voices that, are, that people are used to, that are comforting, um, to be the ones that, that provide this information to the public.
3: Because, you know, um, we're just about out of time, Arnold. But, you know, when, you know we, we talked about stress. We talked about the stress of not knowing things that you need to know, the stress of living under conditions that you don't want to live under. And, and one thing we learned at 9-11 is people often want to know one drop of water that's coming out of a fire hose. They want to know if somebody that they love is still alive. They want to be able to get that kind of information, and it's hard to do when the the information burden of emergency officials is as big as it was in nine eleven. So it's a great argument. I don't know if it would have worked that well in New York, but it's a great argument for that kind of because there's a lot of stress not knowing if somebody's alive.
0: Yeah, the um, you have to make a, a differentiation between local, regional, and national level events, and really what. Um, what uh, Manny and Jeff are involved with, ultimately, the importance are those national-level events.
3: All right. We're going to stop there. Uh, we'll do more of this, though. Arnold always says that a show like this can save people's lives, so we should probably do shows that can save people's lives. Uh, we should also just do shows that you know, make you happy you are alive. We'll do both of them, but thanks for listening and listen to these people now.